From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Goal Own Goal. Joining me, as always, is the man himself, the man from the lake, in the lake, near the lake, and by the lake, Roger Mitchell. Hi, matey. How are you? Not bad. It's a little bit early. A little bit early. But uh, you're an early bird. A little so, bit early. Um, you're, an hour, you're an hour ahead of me. It's I know. An hour early it's for Saturday me. morning. And I'm not whining. I'm not whining. It's, it's Saturday morning, and we were a bit late last night, I have to say. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> right, I'll let you off. You're still, you're still recovering from the marvellous no, no. summit a week or so ago? No, no. I, yeah, it was. we went back to Onda last night just to celebrate a little bit. It was good. It was a little bit too good. But uh, oh, it's showtime, so we'll, we'll get this together. Attaboy. You sounded a, you sounded a bit husky, Rog, which, is, which portends well for the, for the state of your rents this morning. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, yeah, I tell you what, on that, on that basis, why don't, why don't I let you go first then? What have you got for me this week? Oh, oh God, I, I was hoping you would do that. Um, oh, if I'll go well, first. I'm going to go first. It's all right. Yeah, you go, you go first. You go first. Let me wake up. Right, I'm going to I'm going to kick off. I'm going to kick off with um, something I've been watching or, or something I've watched on the TV the last few days, and that is this new David Beckham documentary. Have you seen yes. it? Probably not yet. I saw oh, the clip, the famous clip, the clip, oh, just the, clip. the famous okay, clip. Okay, okay. The famous clip. What's the famous clip? The one about the Rolls Royce. He asked her what car her dad took her to. Maybe you've not seen that yet. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Her yeah, dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I hadn't seen the clip on social media. <laughs> Excellent. But, uh, I, I, I sat and watched it because I've been awake at all st- sorts of stupid hours of the morning this week for some reason. So I've been binge watching that Beckham documentary. And I have to say, I thought it was absolutely excellent. Now, I've always yep. been a fan of Beckham, both as a footballer when he played uh, and as a man. And I have to say, it, I thought it was a really well done. Now, it was, it was done by his own production company. So I was expecting a complete and utter snow job. And I didn't think it was that. I think the two of them came across really well. That clip is is very kind of uh, emblematic of how they came across as a couple, like very relaxed, like making fun of each other. And I, I thought it was really, really good. You know, his, you forget actually what a great career he had. Yeah. You know, he was he was never really given, I think, the credit he was due as a footballer. But just watching that and seeing his work ethic, um, you know, his dedication to football. And you know everything that went on behind the scenes. It, it, it was it was it was a really really excellent documentary. I'd recommend anybody watch it. The the thing that um, you know really surprised and shocked me a little bit, and I, and I I was chatting with a couple of my mates about this last night. All the stuff after the World Cup sending off back in '98 uh, in France, you know, yep. when England went out to Argentina on penalties. Yeah, I, I was living in the US then, so I watched the game in the US. So I hadn't been around in the UK for the fallout. Right? And, and I kind of knew he'd got a hard time in the press and stuff. But I hadn't quite realised how disgraceful the treatment he received from quote-unquote fans, which, um, you know, is is where I will bring you into this because I'm sure you were around then and remember it all well. But it, it, was, it was absolutely, it was unbelievable, Rog, frankly. I was watching it just gobsmacked at how awful his treatment was from the fans. And then, you know, uh, how how well he did in just getting his head down and turning that around and going on to that famous night at Old Trafford when England had to draw with Greece to get through the World Cup finals and, you know, Beckham scores that goal, uh, you know, with almost the last kick of the match to send him through. You know, you can see the outpouring of emotion from him to do that, to get that goal at Old Trafford in Manchester, you know, such an important thing as England captain. But, you know, I remembered that game for the fact that it was probably the best game I've ever seen any single footballer play. He was absolutely everywhere that night, all over the pitch. He, he stood above every single other player on that pitch. You could see yeah. his desire, his will, his skill. It was it was extraordinary. And they did that justice because normally it's all about that free kick, but they showed plenty of clips of him that game and, and how tireless he was, how much effort he put in. I, I just thought the whole thing was extraordinary and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Have you seen it all? Does it go into the Rebecca Lewis stuff? 
It does. It does. And, you know, I thought, oh, that will be brushed over. And they kind of brushed over it a little bit. They talked about it, they acknowledged it, and they moved on, which is, I'm sure, what they want to do with their marriage. So they didn't completely ignore it. It was given a very delicate touch, but addressed. Let's put it that way. And what did he say? How, how did he How did he justify that? Well, look, it, it, it wasn't a case of him justifying it, right? He, he talked about it being a difficult time for their marriage, and you know they didn't go into details with it. It was it was probably ten minutes of the of the show, and it talked about how difficult it was in Madrid and yada yada yada. So, like I said, it was given a very light touch, but not ignored, which is, you know, I think probably fair, right? If that's that's what that's what you do if you were yeah. doing something yeah. like that, you know, you can't ignore yeah. it but you don't necessarily need to rake the whole thing up. And, they, you know, they talked to Posh about it and they talked to him about it. And, you know, I thought it was it was gentle but fair, has it? Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I've always had a soft spot for Beckham. I think he's just a normal bloke at the end of the day. People forget also that, you know, he got into um, a relationship with her that made them very, very famous. She, she, was, she was big at the time. And I think, you know that took him a little bit out of his comfort zone of what he is, which I think is just a, a very basic young guy from the East End of London. And I think in terms of, of football, I agree with you, Grant. Uh, he hasn't been given the credit. I mean, if you think about it, he went from United to Real and then PSG. Then he played in, in Milan, then became the, the pioneer of what now is uh, the MLS uh, and, you know, uh, one of the things I always remember about his career is, um, coming back to your point, is the way two managers that I really rate dealt with him in difficulty. The, the first one is, when you're referring to 98, is I think Ferguson went to pick him up at the airport and, you know, understood what was going to come at him and basically just said, look, you're home here, I'll look after you. That's the greatness of these coaches. The other one if you find this this video on on youtube is is his last moments at psg yeah where um yeah that's right but there's this lovely clip it's in french uh where it's done beautifully you know they just put a camera on him for the last five minutes uh, and the the voiceover is basically saying you know look at him he realizes it's now over he's lost you know he's thinking about his whole career and you can see him i mean he doesn't touch yeah. the ball in that clip uh, and uh then he goes off and um Ancelotti's there. It's just a beautiful clip. And this brings me on to something I was going to mention. These amazing coaches, you know, there are some people that think that leaders and coaches and captains don't matter. But, you know, it's no coincidence that Ancelotti and Ferguson had such great careers because they've got this human touch. And, um, you know, they, in that clip, you see Ancelotti just hugging them at the end and saying, I understand, don't worry. And Beckham kind of like collapses into his arms and he's crying. It really is a beautiful clip. You can find it. It's in French, but you know, it's easy enough to I've understand. I've seen it, yeah, no, I've seen I was it. Going to it's link like three minutes long yeah, with music yeah, and the whole thing, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Just really done with class. There's just one more thing I want to I want to sure. touch on with this, this Beckham thing while we're on it. Everybody was in that documentary, right? Obviously, sort of Gary Neville was in there, his best mate and whatever, giving the Man United view. But Cantona was in there. Uh, Roberto Carlos was in there, Ronaldo was in there, Figo was in there. All the guys, all the big Galacticos that you played with were in there. Michel Salgado was in there. And you could tell they had a genuine respect and love for him for sure. as a player and as a person, right? You can tell. Yeah. And, it, and it wasn't as though he was just like a kid who worked hard. They all understood what a talented footballer he was, what a great team member he was and what a good guy and there was a genuine affection there and just like uh, you said Ferguson put their arms around him you know when when he was in Madrid you know when he went through the piece with Capello where Capello froze him out because he'd, he'd signed to go to the MLS you know, he'd agreed to this LA Galaxy and they froze him out and he trained on his own and they even had Capello there saying he was a consummate professional he showed up every day and they just showed him training on his own and in the end it was the players who basically went to Capello and said You've got to bring him back in. We want him back in the team. It was extraordinary. Yeah, just it's a it's a yeah. fantastic documentary. And you know, fans and people it. who don't have a genuine opinion from one or the other will enjoy it, I guarantee it. Yeah, I think, you know, before coming on to Marine, you've just made me think about one of the other stories this week, which is Paul Pogba. Yes. And, and you just want to look at the difference between those two. Uh, arguably Pogba is a much more talented player. I had a, a lot much more 
uh, to give in terms of talent, but did absolutely nothing. Uh, and now he's been found cheating at drugs. Uh, and even without that, the, the, the last years of his career have just been a shambles. Soonest has always been right on that. And, um, you know, Beckham doesn't get the credit uh, he, he deserves. You know, he really maximised completely across many huge clubs. One of these clubs is very likely you're going to fail just for one reason or another. He never, they all, they, they, they all you know, so um, I was saying, I was looking at Mourinho and uh, I, said to, I said to my son the other day, I said, uh, is it a bad start to the season, Mourinho? You may not have known that. You know, he's... he's uh, that lost a lot of games in the league because I love Mourinho. I think he's just the same as Ancelotti and Ferguson. I said, I said to him, "What's the problem with Mourinho? This is his third season. He should have the team he wants now." And he and he said, uh, "That football is gone. That football uh, is superseded. And and no matter how good he is, he's playing an old version of our sport now." I thought that was quite interesting. But, you know, the, the the thing I want to refer to with Mourinho is, you know, so he's, he's got a little bit of pressure, to put it mildly. And he does this press conference where he basically just puts on all the skill of the immense communicator he is. You know, he doesn't try and hide it or, or talk about football reasons. He just basically goes into those human things that he does when he's at his best. And um, he turned it around turned it around completely what the fans of Roma were thinking, but also loads of people that think he's done. He, he caps it off. He brings this young player in to stand beside him. And he says, look, um, this young player's now in the first team. He's a local lad. He said, um, this boy uh, years ago was one of the, the, the fans outside the training ground waiting for the players to come in in their cars. And now he's playing in the first team. And this is what football's about. This is what community's about. And, and, you know, he asked the young lad to comment on that. And, and he says, yeah, I can't, I can't believe it. I was out there and you've brought me in. You've, you've looked after me. And, 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 you know, the reality is, I was, the thing I was thinking about, Grant, as this world of sports, certainly football is kind of like bouncing off the walls now with, with money, with uh, Saudi, with ideas of super leagues. You know, maybe there is this kind of like postmodern reality that uh, it will just go back to, players and managers just connecting with a fan base and, and winning maybe isn't that important anymore. If you can do that well, the fans the fans will be happy. You know, it takes a special person to do that, but um, Mourinho shows, I mean, Rome's a strange place, right? Rome is, they've never really won a lot despite having all the advantages in the world. So he's, he's tapped into that. He's tapped into the fact that, you know, we don't win a lot, but it doesn't matter, does it? And uh, these these managers, these the ones that you see, they really are extraordinary. You know the the way that they they, they manage to connect like that. And I think that's going to be one of our futures as football. It's if it does all go to the very very top end, then the people that can connect with a community and a fan base and and, and explain to them why they're following the team, I, th I think they're going to be worth their weight in gold. Yeah, I, I agree with that hundred percent. You know, I think this, and we've spoken about this before a long time ago on this podcast, we talked about the importance of communication and how the fans and the chairman, I think it was around the time we had Gary Sweet on, Rog, just talking about if you, if you, if you have that yeah. ability to articulate what it is you're trying to do, the constraints you're up against, I think fans will buy into that. I think fans will absolutely accept the limitations that various clubs have. There are clubs who expect to win. And this goes back to, you know, what our mate Conor O'Donnell said to me when Fulham got to that final in Hamburg, you know, he, he told me how jealous he was because he was so used to going to cup finals with Arsenal and he went there expecting to win and if he didn't win, he had a miserable day. And he said, you know, you're yeah. going to this cup final, win or lose, you can have a great time with your dad and your brother and stuff. And he was absolutely right. You know, so I think I think there is a, a, a huge amount of importance that's going to be placed upon the ability to communicate the reality of a, t a club situation to its fans. And, and I think they will buy into it and I think they will get behind a team that is open and honest and realistic about what they what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing. There's another thing about talking about great managers that I wanted to bring up here, on the same theme a little bit, mate. Which is, you know, I, I think there's a, a whole trend now for a whole load of fans to say, look, 
the trophies and, and the, the, the medals and the cups that are won with, you know, mega, mega money and mega capital aren't the same. You know, so I saw something about Pep Guardiola. Pep Guardiola, I'm quoting now from a tweet, Pep Guardiola has been a manager for 15 seasons. 12 out of those 15 seasons, his clubs have been charged with serious cheating. You know, because the Barcelona thing about the refs now and how they were, let's say, incentivizing refs to be favorable to Barcelona. The only three clean seasons out of those 15 were when he was in Germany. And, you know, that's something that Pep's going to have to live with. Man City, obviously, all those charges against them, they're still there, still there. And now the Barcelona stuff as well. Let's add in what we said, you know, when we had, remember, Duncan Castle on the podcast, when we, we talked about Pep's history of, um, let's say, drug controversies when he was in Brescia and and, and, and all through that, um, you know, the Spanish, what's he called, Fuentes stuff and everything like that. I love Pep. I think he's a, a generational coach, but in a very kind of like Catholic way, all of us are sinners, and I, and I love that, Grant. You know, like, there's no absolute right and wrong. There's even the saints had, you know, their, their backstory that wasn't always so glorious. So, I mean, I, I'm thinking a lot about great coaches and who they are and, you know, where everybody sits in, the, in their position in this world. Yeah, like, you know, like, I, I don't know, all the stuff with Pep, uh, you know, I admire the football he gets his teams playing, but I can't, I can't love it. Because it's not, it's not, it's built on money, right? And you buy the best players, and you buy the best coach. You're going to get that kind of football, and it's wonderful to see. But I just can't, I can't fall in love with it, Roger. Which is a shame because it's the kind of football as a kid you dream of watching, and it's, you know, like I said, it's it's fantastic to see. But I just don't have a a connection with it because it just feels like stick me in charge of that team, and I could probably take a good run at the Premier League with them, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Well, maybe, well actually, you, I, to be fair, to, to be fair, that's, that's not true. Um, if you look at Chelsea and, and Man United, money isn't everything at all. And you can have loads of money. That's why I do like Pep. And also, you know, Man City in general, I think, yeah, they've had all this money, but they've managed it very well. I think they buy very well. And as you say, he's a great coach, a true innovator. He's taking the game forward. And that's why I think my son's comment about Mourinho and that football being dead is true. I think Pep moved the game forward. But yeah, it's the polarisation I see. I, I really feel, you know, I said this in the book at some point, the Sheffield Derby uh, United against Wednesday, it doesn't need to be in the EPL or some kind of Super League to have meaning and serious meaning for that community. What you have to do, what the challenge is, is to, to market that well and to find a structure that becomes sustainable. And that's the big challenge for our industry grant. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. All right, well, listen, what, let's stay on football because obviously we have to talk about this uh, Liverpool Spurs game and the VAR controversy because it's, I mean, it's extraordinary to, to watch this thing play out, Rog. You know, I, I don't think we need to recap it. It has been on the... Well, you called it in the last GOG. You you call well, it? Well, yes and no. Said. I mean, I, I I mean, look, I I, I just I, I I really I'm at a loss with this one to be honest with you because it was such an appalling error, right? But what struck me was this idea that the instinct should be to do the right thing, right? Stop the game, right? It is like we've screwed up. This is a massive, massive mistake. It's a clear goal. Stop the game, and. I forget which one of the voices in there. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. Why? Just stop the game. Deal with the fallout afterwards. Stop the game and say that was a goal. The ref blows the whistle. They kick off again. It was, it was you know, seconds later, right? It was the minute the game had been going for 30 seconds or something when they realised what had happened. They could have stopped that game. And so, you know, now we have this, the whole thing thrown into complete chaos. But look, it seems like every week, there is one of these with VAR rods. You know, we had another one in that game. They, they After the match report, they said that Jota's second yellow uh, yellow card wasn't a yellow card and he shouldn't have been sent off. And Definitely I just, wasn't. I just, can't, I just can't get my head around why VAR has been such a disaster, right? It, it's supposed to make everything better. It's supposed to take out a lot of the mistakes that happen. And yet... Every week, you know, we had the Man City-Fulham goal. We had the uh, Man United-Wolves penalty. Every single week, there seems to be a catastrophic error in VAR. 
And, you know, now people are talking about, well, we need to get rid of VAR. Obviously, that's not going to happen because progress continues, right? We've got this semi-automatic VAR they had in the World Cup, which is fine when you've got one or two games going on at the same time. But when you've got 10 going on at the same time, it doesn't necessarily work as well. What's your thought yeah. on this? Because you're, you're much more pragmatic than me about it. I, I just, I'm just bewildered by how appallingly this has been all handled. Well, I told you before, Grant, it, it comes, like anything in life, it comes down to people. Especially with technology, you know, like shit in, shit out, you know, even with the greatest code and software and, and, and everything like that. I told you before, referees, for whatever reason of ego and why they took the job in the first place, they won't admit their mistakes. It's beyond their way of being. And maybe the reason is that once you do start admitting one, you're leaving yourself open to have a debate on the future ones. And that video came out and, you know, everybody was super shocked. And it's, it's what I've always known about referees. They're not the smartest tools in the shed, the sharpest tools in the shed. They, they just aren't. And, and, you know, when you see their thought process there, which, as you say, is immediately defensive. And when we talked about this two or three weeks ago, it was, again, what can we do to defend the poor bloke on the on the pitch that's having a bad time? It's nothing to do about keeping the game integral and fair and, and, and doing the right thing, as you call it. It's a category of people that I think they're actually taught how do we get authority to manage these 22 young men or women these days? And, you know, that, the, the, the good ones are the ones that show what's called authority, the Colinas of this world, you know, the ones that, that, that step on a game and, and make it theirs. VAR has taken the authority of the human Colina away because you've now got this other room you have to deal with. And they just haven't got a process. They haven't got a process to manage how do they keep their authority while still doing the right thing when they, they know that the fans now can see errors much clearer. They couldn't in the past. They couldn't see errors in the past. They can now. And they're in a mess because there's no protocols, there's no processes, and they are set up to never, ever make mistakes. They never come out after a game and explain it as far as I, I've never seen it in, in football. And, and, and the whole thing, as you rightly say now, Grant, this is an industry that's investing hundreds of millions on players now, CapEx. And we're putting our entertainment product that we have invested in with those monies in the hands of people that really aren't up to it. And, and that's even before you get into the idea about the rules of the game. One of the coaches, I can't remember who it was, said, I know I don't even know what the handball rule is now. I don't even know, you know, whether that was right or wrong, even if I watch it back a hundred times. It's a major risk for the sport of football. They have to work on this. And sadly, again, I keep coming back, the FAs, the referee departments, FIFA, they do not have the quality of human resource to manage this you would in, in the way with the urgency that it needs. I, I'm pretty pessimistic about all this, Grant. Well, I, you know, I, I always do this, unfortunately, but it's just it's just such a clear and obvious thing to do, and it's come back to rugby. Now, this Rugby World Cup has completely passed me by, Roger, and I love my rugby. Yeah, it has, it has everybody. I'll start watching soon. Now we're getting down to the you know the games that are going to be meaningful and tight. But I did I watched um, the New Zealand uh, who were they playing the other day. See, I can't remember where they were playing. Uruguay, New Zealand, Uruguay. I just I was home and reading, had it on the background. And, um, you know, New Zealand won 71 nothing or whatever it was, right? But just Wayne Barnes, the English referee, was referee in the game. And just, again, watching how the rugby referees interact with the third match official and how they interact with the players and it's all mic'd up and it's all, you know, you can see how the whole thing is handled. It's extraordinary, right? And if you could somehow find a way to replicate that in football, now I know the game's different, that you know the movement of the game is different, the pacing of the game is different. I totally understand that, but somehow, just listening to this guy, very authoritative, very calm, you know, very clear with the with the players, very clear with the players, right? And there's no raised voices, there's no screaming, there's no shouting. He is absolutely in control of that game, absolutely in control of that game, and I, and I just I, I don't know why. The FA don't approach the RFU and get together and say, right, help us understand how you have created the atmosphere you've created between referees and players, between referees and third match officials, 
between referees and fans. Because again, it comes back to the first thing we spoke about here, right? Transparency, right? The rugby process is completely transparent in the moment. It's not afterwards. We, you know, when, when we see the lines getting drawn on the thing for VAR and football, we don't know what's being said. In rugby, yeah. we do. We know exactly what's being said. And again, that transparency is what will help fans understand the process and it will it will keep these guys a lot more honest. And we won't have to have a week where, oh, are they going to release the audio? What's going on behind the scenes? Is it going to be edited? Is it going to be doctored before we get to hear it? All this nonsense. Transparency. Put it all in the sunlight and let's yeah. let's have a proper conversation about it. Well, you raise a couple of things there. The first one about um, football going to rugby to ask for help. In my time, uh, that that was a cardinal sin. You 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 would never go to I the other it. sport. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry. The second one, and I'm a football guy, right? I'm not a rugby guy. I'm a football guy. So what I'm going to say, it hurts. But um, rugby guys are more educated, Grant. They are, have a higher level of, of upbringing in the main. They probably have got better ways of interpersonal skills, if I can say that. They come from middle class, you know, more professions. Less so now because it's professional, but in the old days, and, and everything comes back from its original DNA, rugby guys were serious guys, you know, like, and then they took the hits and they got up and they didn't squirm on the ground and everything like that. It's a higher quality of man. And I know that's controversial, but I keep coming back. It's it's about the human. And I believe that rugby referees have got genuinely more interpersonal and skills and gravitas. I think it's just as simple as that. Well, look, I mean, it seems that way watching it. I, I agree. But again, you know, it's we come back to our old friend Charlie Munger's saying, which is I've lost count of how many times I've used this in the last week, never mind the last few years. But, you know, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcomes. Every day. And, and, yeah. it, and it's so true, right? And, and, and in football, if you start cracking down, on all the nonsense, right? If you if you mic the referees up and a player swears at the referee, he's off, or play acting, you're off. The VAR comes in and says, right, no, that was a dive, you're off. It wouldn't take more than three weeks, Rog, before this stopped, right? It just wouldn't. You can you can crack down on this stuff very very easily, right? And it's all yeah. about incentives. Yeah. Do you want to stay on the pitch? You need do you will. want to get your bonuses? You just won't do it. You need political will, Grant, and it comes down to one of the things that, that I always say, what kind of sports leader do you want to be? Do you want to, um, you know, go along for the lovely, sweet ride, the expense accounts, greatest job in the world, the perfect seats in the game, or do you want to actually improve things? Uh, to improve things, you need to rock the boat. You need to say to certain people you're not up to it. And, you know, you do that, you die in sport. They circle the wagons and they expel you like your autoimmune system expels a virus. That's the reality of it. Too many sports administrators just go in, have a look around and say, I'll just go along for this ride. Why do I need to rock the boat? And, and that's the answer to most things. Again, Charlie Munger, show me the incentives. Let's look at the, the Rugby World Cup and, and link it to the announcements this week about more or less where the World Cups on football are going to go. The Rugby World Cup, isn't anybody thinking about what works for product market fit commercially in today's entertainment world. It's the opposite of that. This is a two-month-long tournament with a huge percentage of absolutely nothing humiliation games that they in some way think works as a product for broadcast in 2023. That's, that's nothing short of insanity. And, you know, they, they, why do they do that? What's the incentives? It's all political. All of these things are political. You know, whoever runs the organisation, I'm not sure who runs the World Cup, I think it's called World Rugby or something like that. They need to keep a lot of people happy. You know, they need to get their votes. It's the same as Infantino, same as the IOC now. You know, if you've noticed in the old days, getting the, the right to host these tournaments was a, was a competition. You know, you remember London 2012 and, you know, winning that and everything. Now... Now they don't. They actively make sure everybody's a winner. Well, don't bid for this one, we'll give you the next one. Yeah, well, you know, it, it'll go to Spain, but there'll be a bit of Morocco and Portugal as well, and we'll take the first game. to. It's like 
all of these decisions, none of them are made for the fan, the fan and the client, the client being the broadcaster. They're made to keep the people in charge of sport having an ability politically to stay in the role. And what you've seen in this World Cup is the result of this. It's nonsense. You know, I saw Will Carling this morning tweeting saying, um, you know, we need to think about this, this World Cup. Is anybody happy with it? You know, does anybody think we've moved the game forward as an inter- entertainment product? The answer, of course, is no. And this is just the thing that gets me really frustrated with sport. They're making decisions politically to keep their jobs. Look at UEFA this week announcing the Super League, as it was called. I mean, do we not see the, the kind of <laughs> the irony of this? Do you know what I mean, Grant? You know, the vitriol they threw two years ago at the Super League project, and now they're embracing it. It's not about Super League or not Super League. A Super League's inevitable. I've always said that. It's inevitable. It's who owns it, who controls it, and who gets the money from it. And and I would just wish this industry would be honest about this stuff. You know, because it's so apparent it's so apparent that that's what they're doing. And I'll, just to finish on the Super League thing, linking it back to where you started with Beckham and, and the shit that he got in 98. Who was it that shouted down the Super League? The fans. Those same fans that abused David Beckham. Let's never forget who fans are in football. And the worst thing you can do is point to them and say, oh, we need to make a decision because the fans aren't happy. The fans are always wrong. You know, they're always wrong and they always behave irrationally and emotionally. And leadership in sport is about the courage to say, I'm going to go against what the fans want. Well, yeah, I can't argue with any of that, to be honest with you. It saddens me a great deal, but you've you've been absolutely right on this from day one. And my greatest frame of reference for that is always this, the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, right? You know, and the, and the way the fans are at the end of season one. Uh, and how they are in the first episode of season season two, and you just you look at that, and you know, yes, the se- the the series came out a year apart, but if you watch the end of season one and the and the beginning of season two back to back now, and you see you know, thirty seconds apart, the fans are like, we want the board out, the players out, the manager out, the town out, the stadium's got to be knocked down. This is just the worst thing ever. And the next thing is, it's like, you know, they're putting the scarves on, I can't wait to get back in the ground, the new season's here. That's fans for you, right? That's that's fans, and and, and you're absolutely right. That, that is fans, Grant, and, and they are. And it's like what I said before about, you know, the saints and the sinners. None of us are one or the other. Fans are beautiful. You know, it's what makes sport. But they have got a very dark side that somebody that knows what they're doing is able to, to realise that it's not all glory, and it's not all horrible nastiness and racism and irrationality. It's both. And, you know, that's why it's very difficult to make progress in this industry because they are both, you know, the alpha and the omega. We should just be honest about all this stuff. That's, to come back to your word, transparency, that's the problem. That's the problem we have in trying to get through this world we're in now of complete disruption. Nobody is honest. No, I haven't seen anybody say about the Rugby World Cup, oh, this is just, you know, badly designed because it had to be, Was you know, we've given the World Cup to all these different nations because it had to be. All, everything I look at, at these days, and, you know, there's the other story I saw this week about, you know, the EPL and the EFL selling their rights together again, which is the first step towards a remerger in my view. That's political. In this case, it's political with a capital P, where because there's a lot of votes in, in this kind of thing. That's a, that's a bad move. If you think about what happened in 92 and the creation of the premiership and the ability to focus on the top 20 teams, that for 30 years has been shown to be a massive success. So so why do you want to go in the other direction? Uh, because there's votes in it. Because the politics of football demand that. I'm just getting a bit fed up about all of this. I want people to be honest. If we want a chance to solve the problems of this industry, we need to face up to when certain things may not be palatable, may be inconvenient truths, but those are the ones that we have to solve first. So so there's your husky rant there, Grant. There you go. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. enough. All right, well, listen, we we started on VAR. We ended up on the Rugby World Cup, which... uh... Not quite sure how we got there, but it was interesting nonetheless. So what else have you got for me? Uh, I want to come back to you on the Ryder Cup. 
I think the Ryder Cup, has, there's a lot of things to say about it. I would start off with the American team and Brooks Kepka and Cantley. And, you know, should they get paid? Keegan Bradley saying, you know, I would have gone for nothing and all of that. It's dead easy to say, oh, how horrible that is. They've got no te- team spirit. How dare you? But at the same time, you know, like where does all that money go? Uh, coming back to dear friend, we mentioned a second ago, Will Carling in, in 94, 95, at the time of rugby going professional, he made the very clear point that the English rugby union was making an awful lot of money and the players were seeing none of it. Same with the NCAA and, you know, not paying any of those young lads, actually denying them to earn any money at all. You know, so I've got a wee bit of sympathy with these American players saying, look, maybe I just wanted to give it to charity, but it shouldn't go to you. Why should it go to you? You know? Anyway, how did you read the whole event? Uh, uh, you know, I, th- I thought it was, it went very well. Cool, where to begin? Uh, it, look, it was tremendous. And it, and it, I won't say always, because la- the last one was a, was a real dud at Whistling Straits. And not just because Europe got battered, but because there were, you know, there were no fans there from Europe. It, the energy was all wrong. It just wasn't a normal Ryder Cup. But that one aside... Every single one of them has been tremendous. It's it's pure sporting theatre, Rog. And and I, and I think when you have something that's pure sporting theatre, I take a very different view to you with the money, right? I think in this particular case, you have something here at the centre of a sport that is so based around money that transcends money. And yes, the PGA of America and the European Tour make a fortune from this thing. But a lot of that money goes into the grassroots of the game. Not all of it, but a lot of it goes into the grassroots of the game. The guys get $200,000 to give to a charity of their choice, which is great. And I think one week a year to play for the pure enjoyment of the game, the thrill of the game, the pure competition level of the sport isn't crazy once every two years. And if you don't want to, if you're not happy not getting paid, just say, you know what, no, I'll sit this one out for not getting paid because I guarantee you there are a thousand other professional golfers who would absolutely crawl over broken glass to make one of those teams. And every time you see it at Ryder Cup and you see, particularly on the European side, admittedly, you see the emotion, the camaraderie it fosters, uh, the energy. It's so pure, Rog. It's so pure watching those matches, watching these guys with not a dollar at stake and them reacting in, uh, in, in a more animated way than they ever do in a tournament. You know, it's absolutely, have you ever seen Justin Rose react like he did when he held that part on 18 on the first day? No, you won't see him do that when he wins the US Open. You know, there's something magical about the Ryder Cup. No, I, I, I can't argue have it, with that, Grant. I can't argue with that, Grant. What I'm saying is, it's not that I want to get paid, it's more, why should those duffers get the money? It's it's not about that's how I see it. It comes down but, but, to the but, fact but, but, that Bruce, what does what does duffers get the money mean, right? What does duffers get the money mean? I, I, the, I listen. The, I, the I money, don't want to get. I'm not. Sh- what I'm saying. No, but Grant, this, is, this, is, became, look, this this became a big this became a big talking point, right? But the reality is, there's an awful lot of money that comes from Ryder Cup that goes into the grassroots of the game, right? And yes, I don't you buy might that. not see I, it. I, 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 I do. I don't. That. I'm sure it doesn't all go in there, Rog. But it's you not it's, sitting in a you bank think it's account spent well? up. You think it's spent well? It always comes back to the human. I think if, unless I'm wrong, that is going to the organisation that is run by Jay Monaghan. I wouldn't give him a fiver to go get the rolls in the paper after what he's shown <laughs> me in the last year. That, that's, that's my point. That's, that, that's it. That's, that's it for me. Well, that's all I'm saying. They shouldn't, they shouldn't get money from it, the players. Wait, so but, right, so it, what you're saying is get rid of Jay Monaghan and the whole thing's fine. Like anything, it all comes, the fish rots from the head down. All these people have shown, Chefferin and and UEFA, that they're hypocrites, that they're in it for themselves, and until we get rid of them, we're not going to make progress in solving all the major major challenges we've got in this sport. And, 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 you know, like, when you get a Ryder Cup, and it is beautiful, it was a great product, everybody says, oh, oh, sport's fine, isn't it? Look what else can do this. It's, it's amazing. That's the, the, the real danger, that we, for a, a weekend, go back and say we're fine. We're not fine. You know, I'm going to take it on to what, you know, uh, here, what's this called, this TGL thing? You know, that was announced yeah. this week. Yeah. You know, like, do you see the details of that, Grant? You know, how they're going to play... Um, the celebrity crossover, mic'd up, you know, like, 
that's the future unless the tradition can get better at what it does. That's the only point I'm making. Well, we'll see, right? We'll see if that's the future. Look, that's, I've got no problem with this, right? And it might be great fun. But let's see. Let's see what the viewing figures are like. Let's see what the engagement's like. Let's see if fans really, really do flock to this thing and it blows away the viewing figures for the PGA. Let's see. I suspect it won't. I suspect looking at the viewing figures for the match, you know, when you have these celebrities, quarterbacks playing with Tiger and Phil and, you know, all this stage stuff with microphones and stuff, viewing figures were appalling. And this might be an interesting novelty and it might do well and it might do really well, but it may not. And you may find that when you try the golf product and you try and shake it up, look at Liv, right? Look at Liv. It's just not worked, right? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if if you're a Liv fan or a PGA Tour fan. The simple answer is it hasn't worked. It hasn't generated the kind of change and the kind of interest that they would have wanted to. It just hasn't. You know, and you look at the fact that they still can't get a proper broadcasting deal in the US and the TGL with Tiger and Rory in it is going to be on ESPN and ESPN Plus and, you know, there's a a proper broadcaster going to show this thing right away. Liv hasn't worked. And I think there's a... Oh, let's not talk about Liv because we've talked... No, no, but I'm I'm, I'm linking it to this, Roger. I'm I'm linking it to this. I say I think Liv hasn't worked and I'm more than willing to believe that TGL, apart from initial interest in a funky new thing won't work. I, I don't well, know. We, we, I th- I'll, take the other, I'll take the other side of that trade and I'm going to bring you a data point here now. The NFL figures, viewing figures, because Taylor Swift was in the crowd for her boyfriend playing. The shift, especially in the female audience, is extraordinary, extraordinary. She, it's not even on the field. She's just in the bleachers. You link that to, you know, what was clearly the summer of the the female, the woman dollar in marketing from Barbie to, you know, the Beyonce tour and the Taylor Swift tour. That's why I think this TGL thing will work because they're, they've embraced crossover. Just like KSI and Tommy Fury is going to be the biggest, arguably the biggest sport event of the year. I know you'll say that's utter heresy, but that's how I feel about it. The, the crossover is the way to go. And, and you know, uh, I, I said, just as a little bit of a, a laugh, I said, Ryder Cup is great, but I'd love to have women players in some way brought into the formula. Not saying you need to change the three days the way they are, but you could expand it. You could do other things. You know, why wouldn't you want to have that Taylor Swift effect of women viewers being brought into a high-profile traditional sports event, shot down on Twitter, uh, the usual, the usual. I'm okay. telling you. Okay, yeah, but you know let, what I mean? Answer me this. Answer me this. You talk about the Taylor Swift effect, right, and the change it's had on women viewers to the NFL. Fine. Yep. So yep. what about in two weeks' time when Taylor Swift isn't there? Do those fans come and stay, or is it blown up because it was all over social media and people are suddenly looking, oh, what's going on here, what's going on? I just want to see what, what's all this Taylor Swift nonsense about. It doesn't matter that Taylor Swift goes to an NFL game and is in the stands and there's a whole lot of social media around her in the stands and her and Travis Kelsey and all the stuff that's going on around it. Fans don't come in because there's a you, hot topic. Your fan, your fan doesn't. But listen, the, the, the secret of, of marketing is finding a way for somebody to try your product for the first time. I understand you know, that, Roger. But all I'm saying is you can't talk about this Taylor Swift effect until we've seen 10 weeks from now, there's double the number of women watching NFL because of that one moment when she appeared in the box shouting with Travis Kelsey. There is no Taylor Swift it's, effect. It's a moment in time. And, no, and you might, I'm not I, saying I, you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just think you're judging it way too early. Well, well, if that was my only data point, that's a fair, a fair comment, but it's not, you know, like it's five years now that we've been talking about celebrity boxers. And like I say, this is the biggest event, I think of 2023, this fight coming up, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the audience and who brings an audience being more important than the traditional format of sport. I think that debate, if not finished, is pretty much overwhelming. You know, like you need to do it these days. The people with audiences, bringing them into traditional sports is one of the key ways to try and save this industry. 
And, you know, I would do it with a Ryder Cup. I absolutely, I'm not saying I'd bring in celebs, but I'd bring in all those great women golfers, find a formula to like make it really exciting. And I, I think you would push the audience up quite significantly. I just think, I just think you can't just have a one-off. It needs to be, these, the fans need to come. And this, and this is, you know, at the, at the bottom of our debate about this from day one of this podcast, right, is are you catering to an audience that are so massively short on attention span and so social media driven that if this stuff isn't on social media and dragging them in, are they going to go and sit down and turn off TikTok and watch an NFL game on a Sunday? We don't know. My, my strong suspicion is no. And the, the Taylor Swift effect, if she's not there every week drawing the fans in, if she's not reminding all those fans, hey, don't forget the NFL's on Sunday, I don't think that they're going to become fans, like true fans of the game. They'll watch it for a week here or there, and but, then she'll start okay, dating but a, you'll, a you'll, nice hockey like player and then move on to remember, ice hockey. Listen, one of the guests we had, or maybe more than one, when we've talked about this, uh, and this has come up, and one of them came back to you. I can't remember who it was. They said, so what are you going to do? You know, you're doing, going to do nothing. Like there's no certainties in business or life or anything. I'm not saying this is going to work. I'm saying not doing it is a strategic error because there's a chance it really works. And there's enough data points to suggest that this is where we should be focusing. So I don't think you can say no. And, and let me just kind of like stay over here in my open because at the end of the day, Grant, we're going to die in the next, what, 20, 30 years. These people need to be spending on sport for them to have an industry, for, for sport to have an industry. I don't think there's any choice. There is no alternative, as the lady said once. Yeah, no, look, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. I just, I, I, I completely understand your argument and it has merit. I just think that this whole idea is taken as such a certainty by most people. I think it's too early to call, Rog. I just think it's too early to call. Uh, well, listen, while we're on the NFL, I'm going to bring you another good and it just shows you how much uh, how much insomnia I've had this week because I've been also been watching this um Netflix documentary quarterback. Have you seen this? Saw one of the saw the first one. Okay, so they're they're following they're following three quarterbacks: Marcus Mariota of the Atlanta Falcons, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs, and Kirk Cousins of the Minnesota Vikings. And it's just it's tremendous. It's I mean I love these sports documentaries anyway, so you know you had me at hello kind of thing. But just watching behind the scenes, just watching the work ethic of these guys the intensity that they train, the intensity when they play, it's just, it's just tremendous. And just great kids. Mahomes is a, is a superstar and what a leader he is. You know, what an absolute yeah. leader this guy is. And, and listening to him talk to the linebackers who've just flattened him and explain how, you know, he's nice to them because he wants them to like him because it might, it might give him that tiny edge where they don't want to hurt him too much. And, <laughs> and, you know, Kirk Cousins, this guy who is just the most humble, down-home God-fearing middle American guy you could ever wish to meet, and you know he takes the Minnesota Vikings all the way to the you know very edge of the Super Bowl. Two different characters you couldn't wish to meet, but it really does a phenomenal job. Now this, Rog, this is a way to create true fans. This is the drive to survive of the NFL, right? This is how you you bring fans into a sport. You help them understand the players. You help them understand what goes on between the times they see them on the TV. You understand what they have to deal with. You understand the pain, the heartbreak, the emotion, all that stuff. It, it's just phenomenal. And that's that to me, if you want to create a new generation of fans, you show them the game and the players. You don't have to change the game. You don't have to get clever with it and do this and the other. You bring people in and you immerse them in the game itself, right? And the game isn't just the two and a half hours on a Sunday. It's the training sure, and the practice sure, sure. and all of the course. stuff, right? That to me is how you create a, a lifelong fan it's, of a team, I don't of disagree a player, with that. It's one of the ways. I, I don't disagree. You're, you're interested in something more if you're invested in the personalities and their character arcs and everything. I don't disagree. One iota. I'm just saying that my, my way is equally as valid as your way, I think. But listen, you know... <laughs> but, uh, 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to make you laugh because I'm waking up in a wee bit now. So like, um, come back to Ryder Cup <laughs> a wee bit. The Ryder Cup. This is how I imagine how the, the whole logistic process of the PGA going to Italy to play the Ryder Cup went. 
So I don't know how they assigned them to get the thing. I, I have no information on that. I, God knows why they decided on Italy, but fa- fair enough. You know, let's say it was a pure decision. Let's try and grow the game in Italy and everything like that. But once you do that, you're you're entering a world <laughs> a world of difficulties. This is Rome. Rome were doing this shit two thousand years ago. <laughs> you know, like it's truly babes in the wood stuff. And now I imagine it went someone like this. They ended up doing a deal with the Italian PGA or whatever it's called, who are the most sleepiest and old school uh, sports organization you could ever come across. They're, 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 they're not with the program, if I could say that. They then decide what course they're going to use, the Marco Simone. Marco Simone and that organization, let's say, are a little bit duckers and divers you know, the Harry Ned Redknapps of the golf world. And and I think, right, so I believe the way the contracts went is that the the PGA had a contract with the Italian Golf Federation. So that's where the legals sit and didn't have any direct legal connection with the Marco Simone golf course. And I believe what happened over these months, which we'll never know because it went well and nothing uh, nothing dramatic happened. I believe that once they were on the hook, the Marco Simone organization played real hardball. You want the road? You're going to have to pay for that. You want the clubhouse updated, the bathrooms? I'm afraid that's on you. I believe uh, that it's been about a year that they have had this kind of conversation on a weekly basis. They, I believe they got screwed, right? Uh, because they had no leverage. It starts from the fact that they didn't have the direct contractual relationship with Marco Simone. I think that's how I'm seeing it. I don't have any, I may be wrong in all this, but, you know, from the Marco Simone point of view, I'm thinking, right, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll get the deal with the Italian Golf Federation. That's fine. That'll be easy. Uh, and then, you know, we'll leverage them and we'll get them to do everything, pay for everything. They won't want to do it. And, um, you know, when it's all over and we've made our money, We'll torch the venue. We'll torch the venue because it's going to cost a lot of money to take it down. And then where are we going to dispose of it? So it's no brainer. We're just going to fucking (laughs) burn the place down. I mean, like for me that lives in this world, this just seems natural. (laughs) This is natural. (laughs) And then all the coverage, it's a flame, it's a light, it's a light. Of course it's a light. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I, d- I did see that. I did see that all that stuff about the fire, and I did wonder what you, what your thoughts were going to be on it. <laughs> but it didn't take me more than a couple of seconds to say insurance. You know, like it's, just, it's but you know, it's just the way it is. You know, like you, I've told you all my stories about Rome in the past, so I won't do at least privately, so I won't risk boring you again. But what a place that is! What what a place! And, you know, given given all of that, I think the fact that the PGA and the Ryder Cup get out there relatively unscathed is, is a huge win. It's a huge win. Yeah, so, so what you're but, saying is don't expect uh, the next one to be played in Naples anytime soon. No, no. but I believe uh, I was reading in this thing about where the football tournaments are going. I think um, Euro, what is it, 32 is coming to Italy. So that'll be a great time. Uh, but by by that time, you know, Saudi thirty four. I'll be seventy. Just just think about that. Just think about yeah. that. It could, yeah, unbelievable. But listen, let's talk a little bit about the Saudi thing because uh, we did say that you know it was inevitable. Okay, maybe they had to trade away twenty thirty for the certainty of thirty four. But they they are not stopping. We've said this before, and we talked about it enormous amount of time in Como. So I don't want to revisit that. What I want to revisit a little bit, Grant, is when we go into the world of money demographics and geopolitics like this, give us a little bit of an update because your stuff in Como went down so well. A little bit of an update of these interest rates and yield curves and, you know, everybody saying we've got a credit event coming or the charts look like this is the start of something big. Help the listeners understand whether you think we are absolutely at this fourth turning and that is uh, the end of the year of the last 40 years, or this is just going to be kind of like managed again, like they did two or three times in previous crises. Where are we now? 
Boy, that's a big question to bring up on the hour, Mark Rog. Yeah, look, uh, it's the I, juice. I, I, this is the juice. This, try and make this as simple as as we possibly can, because it, it's it's a such a sprawling subject, and it's it's a big, complicated, confusing subject. But at the bottom of it all, let's just talk about money. You know, we've we've talked on this show, and the others in 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 the IU not entertain canon a, a lot about the importance of these rising interest rates and, and what a change that was going to make to sport. And we was talking about it long before rates got up here, right? We were warning that this is going to be a massive watershed moment for sport. And we're here. Money has a cost all of a sudden. And so with the amount of debt that's been taken on in the world of sport over the last 10, 15 years at, you know, very, very low rates, there's a lot of debt that's going to be either needed to be refinanced, which is going to be refinanced at much, much higher levels, prohibitively higher levels, higher levels that make the business plans written when they started these projects uh, not work anymore. Uh, it will render a lot of them obsolete. And when you want to get new capital for sport, which was an easy, easy thing to do over the last 15, 20 years, that's not going to be so easy anymore because you've got to start talking about returns. You didn't have to generate return. It was all about promise for the future. Now, hey, why should I give you my money when I can get 6 7 8% for essentially no risk? What are you going to do for me that incentivizes me to give you this money instead of putting it somewhere where I'm going to generate return that I can be really happy with and take zero risk. That changes everything. And you know, it, it, it really is that broad. It changes everything. So when money has a cost again uh, and has a real value, it becomes much more scarce. And, and sport as an industry needs so much access to capital to be able to function that it is right in the crosshairs of this. You know, when we talk about the Saudis, that Middle Eastern money is the only almost, almost price-insensitive money around. That's been the case for the last couple of years. And the fact that they have so much of it is probably the only tailwind they have in terms of making them less sensitive to what the risk-free rate really is. It makes them your easiest and best bet to actually get them to part with their money because they control the spigots to energy. You know, they can cut energy production, they can raise the price of oil, uh, and they can bring a lot more money into their coffers if if they so choose to do. It doesn't hurt them that that, as a geopolitical move now, uh, with the West where it is, with massive debts, massive inflation problems, spiking energy prices are a nightmare for the West. So again, if the Saudis feel that they want to make a political move, they have the taps to affect that. So the world is a very different place, Rog, to what it was even three years ago. You know, going into COVID, the world was a very different place. Coming out of COVID, it was a very different place. And subsequently, I would argue the change that higher rates bring is bigger than all those. It's bigger than the change COVID made. It's bigger than the change inflation made. And that's not to obviously... Um, belittle the people who died during COVID. I'm just talking about in terms of the shape of the world and how the power dynamics of the world work. What happened during COVID, the response to COVID, and the sheer amount of money that was conjured up out of thin air and handed out to people, assuming it was a free lunch and we wouldn't have to worry about it, has proven to be a catastrophic miscalculation. And rising interest rates are going to expose that. Now, ultimately, rates will probably have to come down again, probably quite quickly. But you have this kind of strange situation where the headline data suggest that the US economy is actually doing quite well, which suggests that they won't be cutting rates anytime soon. And that's why you're seeing chaos in the bond market. And I don't want to get too wonky on the bond market, but just understand that the bond market is the single biggest, most important pool of capital in the world. And we are seeing things happen in the bond market, none of them good, which portend an enormous amount of chaos in financial markets in the economy and beyond. So this isn't the podcast to, to get too deep in the weeds on that, Roger. You know, maybe we can do a special show about it and talk more in depth about it. This is this is gold on gold after all. But the world has changed and we flagged it many, many, many months ago and it's changing dramatically still uh, and those changes aren't finished. And are we in a fourth turning? Yes, we're absolutely in a fourth turning. And if anyone out there doesn't know what that means, find the book The Fourth Turning by uh, Bill Strauss and Neil Howe and read it. It's uh, it's one of the most impactful books I've read in the last 25 years. So, yeah, look, I mean, it's it's um, it's a different world, Rog. But let me ask world. you, it's different, but let, let me ask you, keeping it very much to sport, you said about sport needs capital. It needs to roll over and refinance a lot of the debt that maybe it took on. But here's something I do think everybody can follow. 
That's no different from the American government that has got a huge amount of debt that it needs to finance an awful lot of in the next two years. So I'm trying to end this in a positive note. For that reason alone, forget sport, that's marginal, but for the big picture of America's government finances, surely they're going to bring interest rates down so that they can refinance all that debt in some way that's not that expensive. Well, define expensive, Rog. Right, the coupon rate isn't necessarily always the expense, right? Because yes, they could do that. But here's the problem. If you do that, all the other times they've done that in the last 20 years, they haven't had inflation barking at them from the other side of the coin, right? This time, if you lower rates, inflation gets out of control again very, very quickly. And so this really is, I think, the beginning of the end game, right? This is this is the point now where there is a, a direct and immediate consequence to lowering interest rates. There had never has been before. It was always something that was going to happen in the future. And because it didn't, everyone assumed it wouldn't. What's happening now is exactly what was always going to happen. It's taken a lot longer to play out, but it does tie one hand behind their back. Now, they have the advantage, which sport doesn't have, the American government has the advantage of being able to print money, right, to, to buy their own debt. But that will ultimately end incredibly badly. And it's all a question of timing at this point, Rog. You know, people will say, well, you know, everyone was talking about inflation 10 years ago. It never happened. It didn't, right? And, it did. and there are all kinds of reasons I for that. I said inflation did. Yeah, it, it just wasn't the kind of inflation that people were looking for. And so, yes, will they be forced to lower interest rates? I'm sure they will. Will it play out the same way as it has? I'm sure it won't. I'm absolutely sure right. of that. I don't think lowering interest rates will create this benign environment where everybody just gets on happily, stocks go up, bonds go up, the government's fine. It's just not going to happen that way the next time around, Roger. So I, I'm when they start cutting rates, that's for me when we need to start worrying. Okay, well, that's not so positive. Um, I was hoping that the, the outlook for not bringing the rates down was going to be positive for sport because just remember all those valuation models, those uh, discounted cash flows, all those VC valuations, uh, discounting back profits 10 years from now, they bring one number out if your discount rate is 2%. They bring a very different number out, a lower number if your discount rate is 10%. But also, look, and, the, the fans are at breaking point, right? Stick another 20% on the price of tickets. Stick another 25% on the price of food and drink at the stadiums and see what happens, right? It's just, yeah. it's just inflation is going to be a massive problem. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, there's no easy way out of this anymore. Somewhere, somehow, the pipe is going to have to be paid. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but it's not going to play out well, and it will suck a whole load of money out of the game, either because the capital's not there or through inflation. One way or the other, the value of that money is going gonna, is gonna to decline or its presence will decline. There's no other way around it. Yeah. Listen, thanks for that. I know everybody, you probably don't realise, but I know everybody really values what you did in Como and all this kind of stuff. And it's not wonky. It is, you know, what drives the future of our industry for the next five years, especially when you say the alternative is Saudi. You know, and on Saudi, you know, I'm quite close to some stuff that goes on out there. I said this before, they really aren't playing here. You know, they've got a very young population. And, you know, from what I am told, they're going to go huge on women's football, from what I'm told. And this idea that they're the Khashoggi country and human rights and, you know, LGBTQ, whatever, I think he's going to change all that. You know, like he knows that those are little roadblocks. And, you know, with the only capital in town, I think people are going to be surprised about how quickly this country turns itself around to be the centre of this Middle Earth a little bit. Rog, we will see. You may be absolutely right. You may find that um, he pushes things a little bit too far and falls out of a window, right? Strange things have happened when people try and make massive change in countries that have a fundamental ideology, right? A lot of strange things happen. If You, you, you can push it so yeah. far, but sometimes you push it too far and things happen. Look, I mean, uh, wouldn't it be great, right, if all this stuff happened? Wouldn't it be great, right, if Saudi changed thousands of years of the way that their culture works and they're more inclusive and women's rights are... I mean, wouldn't all this stuff be wonderful? It really would. But I'll take the under in my lifetime. <laughs> Well, you'll be, what, 68 by the time that World Cup comes around? Something like that. In yeah. yeah. So, what is it, 2034? You're a couple of years younger than me. Yeah. 67. Yeah, I'll be 67. 
Well, we, listen, if we remember, if we remember, we'll go to the final together. <laughs> and we'll wear our rainbow yeah. flags, all right? Just to make sure. Just yeah. a different world then. Yeah, yeah. And, and you'll be a woman, of course. You will have identified <laughs> as a woman by that point. <laughs> listen, great to see you, man. Thanks for doing this early. And I hope it was okay. It was a little bit sleepy this morning. All right. Well, listen, our thanks, uh, our thanks as always to you out there for listening to us. This has been another Are You Not Entertained production. If you haven't listened to our show during the week, the first of the bucket list with Andrew Strauss, give that a listen. It was, uh, it was an enormously thanks, fun Infinity. thing to be a part of. And we're looking forward to, to the rest of that series. If you don't follow us already on social media, you can do that very easily. You'll find us at Entertain R. That's the word A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. All right, my friend, I will see you again soon. Take care. Drive safely up north now. <laughs> <laughs>